Well, all religions have their, their own truth claims. They all profess to some degree or another to have cornered the market on truth. And one of the principal differences with Christianity, however, from all of the other major religions is that our truth claims are not realized through a religious system or through adherence to a strict set of religious rules or through even a heightened sense of one's own spirituality. No, the, the truth claims of Christianity are realized through a person, Jesus Christ, which means whatever truth there is in Christianity, it is found in and only in Jesus Christ, who not only claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, in fact, the only way, the only truth, and the only life, but he proved it by being born of a virgin, living a perfect life, dying an atoning death on the cross, raising from the dead and ascending to his throne in heaven, thereby not only validating his identity as the Son of God, but doing something that no other religious leader or anyone else for that matter has ever done. This was and is will remain the ultimate display of power for all of eternity, a power unlike any other. It's a power that overcame death and hell, giving new life and that eternal to all who call upon the, the name, that mighty name, our source of strength and power, the name of Jesus Christ. In truth, there is no other religion or religious leader who deserves to even be mentioned in the same conversation as Jesus Christ because he alone is the ultimate truth claim with all others combined amounting to nothing more than a feeble, feckless, powerless, perverse attempt to reduce God down to something or someone that we can manage, that we can control and quantify and define. But listen, our God is indefinable. He is unquantifiable. He cannot be controlled or managed by men. And so I have these conversations from time to time with people who follow other religions, people who want to tell me about their God, and I understand that. And so when it's my turn to share, I like to share what a few credible witnesses have had to say about my God. Job 37:23. the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. Job 11, 7 through 11, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They're deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. In Psalm 33, 6, David said, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Jeremiah 32, 17, Oh, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And in Amos 4, 13, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, Amos said, For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Now I'm sorry, but tell me again what your God can do. You see, I don't want to draw my strength from a counterfeit God. 
I don't want my source of peace in this life to be a cheap and powerless imitation of the one true God. Because our God is the creator God, the almighty God. He is holy and eternal God. He's matchless. He's authentic because he's the only true God, which means he's the only true source of strength. And so it is only by his strength that we've any hope of accomplishing anything truly good on this earth. There's not only much good to be done, by the way, but we, his church, we are the ones who've been commissioned to carry out that work. We've been commanded to do his bidding, to be his earthly example of his strength to all of those who do not yet know him. And so we must constantly remind ourselves where it is that our strength actually comes from. Because the moment we begin to operate by our own strength or to try and draw strength from any other place outside of Christ, even when with the best of intentions, we will falter and ultimately fail because true strength comes from Christ alone. And yet sometimes we have a tendency to fall back on our own strength, don't we? To try and accomplish the work before us, even God's work, by our own power and our own strength, which usually ends up causing more harm than good, both for us and for others, which is precisely, by the way, what the Apostle Paul is confronting in our story today as we complete our study through his letter to the Philippian church, where in this final chapter, we find Paul tying all of the previous chapters of the letter together in this last. And if there is one statement that personifies the entire message of the letter, it is that now very famous verse in Philippians 4.13, where referring to Jesus Christ, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me which is not only a tremendous source of encouragement for Christians today, of course, just as it was then, but it also exemplifies the absolute necessity for believers to understand and remain aware at all times what truly is our source of strength. Because, listen, the first five words of that verse are only true when connected to the last five words of that verse. Right? The the first five words, I can do all things, are only true when followed by the last five words of that statement, through him who strengthens me. And so when you try to live by the first half while neglecting the second half, you end up with a lot of believers walking around burned out and stressed out and wrought out with themselves and often with other people. That is also often why you find people at odds with one another in the church and in their homes and quitting their ministries and quitting their relationships, even leaving the church because they're trying to live like the first half of that verse. They're trying to do all things while neglecting the second half of that verse. They're not taking the time and creating the space in their lives and making the effort to be strengthened through him. But the first half of that verse doesn't work without the second half, which is what Paul is teaching us in this final chapter of Philippians, that there is nothing that can stop us. We can accomplish anything and everything that he calls us to, that's key, as long as all of that is done through Christ, who is our source of strength. That's the key to not burning out, to not giving up, to not walking away from the church or from one another or in our ministries or in our families. We must draw our strength from Jesus Christ, our source of strength. So let's turn there together to Philippians chapter 4 and we'll read it beginning with the first three verses. 
Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Aodia and I entreat Syndike to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul begins this final chapter reminding the Philippian believers to stand firm. And if you were here last week, you know that in the previous chapter, Paul was teaching them how to press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in their lives. And he talked about how many among them had started off that way. They'd started off with God, but since had given in to setting their minds on what Paul called earthly things because they were focusing on themselves. They had made, he said, uh, their bellies became their gods. And so instead of focusing on Christ, they were focusing on themselves. And so many of them consequently had strayed from the faith. And so here he's referring back to that teaching in chapter 3 by saying, therefore, stand firm, because the temptation to stray, to get off track, is always there anytime we take our eyes off of Jesus Christ. But that's not all, because there was this specific instance of this happening at the Philippian church that Paul wants to address. And so he does something that is very uncharacteristic of his writings. In verses 2 and 3, Paul describes the problem that's happening in the church there, which he did often in his letters, but what makes this particular instance so unique is the fact that he brings up those who are involved by name. Now keep in mind, this letter was not written to three or four close confidants in Paul's inner circle. This was written to the entire church at Philippi, and as was the custom in the first century church, these letters would then be read aloud by the elders to the entire congregation. And so, as if it's not awkward enough to be sitting there at church with all of your friends, as this letter is being read out loud, and then all of the sudden, the ongoing fight that you've been having with your fellow church member is aired out in the letter in front of everyone. Even worse... These women who were involved that Paul names were leaders in that church in Philippi. So everyone knew them and looked to them as being examples of Christ-likeness. Okay, back in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15, we see that the church in Philippi had its origins among a group of Gentile women as Paul had first led a businesswoman named Lydia and probably several other women who were with her to Christ by a river just outside of town. And then by Lydia's request, the group came back and stayed at her house, which was then the genesis of the church in Philippi. So it's not surprising to find Paul describing two women here at the opening of chapter 4 as those who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, which is also a strong indication that these were leaders in the church who worked with him side by side during that time while he was planting and establishing that church. In fact, Uh, Although there is no unanimous agreement among scholars as to the extent of their leadership role, there is a fairly broad sense of agreement that it was a significant role in leadership. Moises Silva, a great scholar, writes that one must not minimize the force of Paul's description of those two women as co-workers. And going even further than that, John Chrysostom, the well-known 4th century uh, church father, he was the Archbishop of Constantinople, in reference to this passage, he wrote, these women seem to me to be the chief of the church, which was there. 
So although we don't really know the exact leadership role held by these two women in the church, we certainly believe it was significant, which underscores the seriousness of the division that was happening in the church there and the reason that Paul felt the need to address them by name publicly within the larger church community. In fact, I've wondered if, if one of them was reading the letter <laughs> to everyone else. We don't know. But make no mistake, this was a big deal. Big enough that many Bible scholars believe this particular quarrel among these church leaders may have been the driving motivation for Paul to write the entire letter to begin with because much of what he teaches throughout the first three chapters seems to foreshadow, to look forward to, even to echo his counsel to these church leaders here in chapter 4. For instance, in verse 2, when Paul says, I entreat Aodia and I entreat Syndike to agree in the Lord, if you read that phrase in the ancient Greek, the original language, it's autos phroneo. Paul uses that same phrase multiple times throughout the letter. Back in uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, for instance, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You can clearly see how he may be indirectly referencing these same two leaders earlier on in the letter who are having a very serious dispute within the church, these two who are at odds with one another. And then Paul repeats that phrase in other places, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, when he's talking about spiritual maturity. So you get the idea. Paul is making a case for reconciliation throughout the letter, and it, it seems plausible at least that the entire letter may all be pointing to and building up to this specific problem among the church leadership here in chapter 4 where he calls out these offenders by name. However, I do want to mention, because it's equally important for us to recognize that these church leaders are not being addressed in the same way as the, the Judaizers or the false teachers or those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ who Paul describes earlier in the previous chapters because he describes these women as those whose names are in the book of life, which was actually a very common, uh, frequently used traditional title of honor in Jewish literature at the time. So even though Paul is issuing a very strong and very public rebuke of these two women, he's also being very careful to make clear that these are true believers who should be honored and restored among the body. So he's drawing a sharp distinction between them and those wolves in sheep's clothing who are to be separated from the sheep. And so all of this sets up the rest of the chapter that we're going to get into now where Paul begins teaching them specifically how to restore the unity within the body that has been compromised by the division among its leadership and how to stand firm in the midst of those who have left the faith and even those false teachers who attempt to mislead the people. So let's keep reading the story together, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So after highlighting the conflict among the leadership of the church, Paul spends the next six verses talking about how to achieve the very opposite of conflict, which of course is what? It's peace. So back in verse two, he pleads with these leaders to agree in the Lord. And then in the section we just read, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Be reasonable. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. Instead, let your requests be made known to God. And then your hearts and minds will be guarded by the peace of God in Christ Jesus. And the God of peace will be with you. What's the common denominator in every single aspect of what Paul is teaching the church to do in order to achieve peace among them? The common denominator is God because he is the source of everything that is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. God is our source, which means if we want to achieve peace in our lives, we must go to the source of peace, Jesus Christ. He is our source of peace. Isaiah prophesied, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6. Jesus Christ is our source of peace. In fact, in the beginning of this letter, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, as Paul so often does, he greets the church by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't say peace from me because Paul knows he's not the source of true peace. True peace comes from Jesus Christ alone. And so we, we can work really, really hard to bring peace back into a chaotic situation or into conflict into our lives. We can, we can work really hard to bring peace to that situation, those circumstances. But if we're not drawing from the very source of peace, I'm telling you all of our efforts will ultimately fail and we'll burn ourselves out in the process. Because no matter how hard we try, we cannot manufacture peace on our own. We cannot. Not true peace in our lives. In fact, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard Pastor Paul McDonald talking about forgiveness. And it was a wonderful message to which I will just add that if you don't rely on Christ to implant his peace into your heart, then that situation in your life where there's brokenness, where there's hardness of heart, where maybe there's bitterness or unforgiveness, that won't ever be repaired. You will never know the peace that surpasses all understanding if you won't allow Christ, the source of peace, to do that work within you. Okay? It, it is his desire to guard your heart and your mind with his peace. But when we're so deeply wounded, we often turn our focus away from the source of what we actually need in that moment, and instead we go into uh, self-preservation mode, don't we? We turn our focus inward toward ourselves and like a starving body without food that begins to feed on its own reserves until there's nothing left, we burn ourselves out spiritually and emotionally, often physically, when we begin to focus inward and try to find peace from within ourselves instead of from the true, the true source of peace. 
That's why Paul teaches us to meditate on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent and worthy of praise, because none of those things can be found inherently within ourselves. No, we must look to Christ for those things because he is the source of those things. And so when we choose to focus on Christ instead of ourselves in our circumstances, he guards our hearts and minds with his peace so that we don't have to. It is so beautifully simple. And yet sometimes it's the hardest thing for us to do. But listen to me, it can be done. In fact, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. That's the key because he's our source. And so if your life is short on peace, even though you've been longing for it and looking for it, try shifting your focus from the conflict and what it may be doing inside of you to Jesus Christ instead and everything that he is, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Forsake your hurt and run to the source of healing instead, the source of peace, and he will guard your heart and your mind. And then you know what? You can get on with your life. That's what Paul's trying to get across here. And so as we continue reading, as he so often does, Paul uses his own life as an example for us to follow. So let's read verse 10 through to the end of the chapter, which includes Paul's closing remarks. But then we're going to go back and focus on the rest of the teaching part of this chapter, which is found predominantly in uh, verses 10 through 13. So we'll, we'll read 10 through to the end. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me uh, help for my needs once and again. Not, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he, final greetings, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul begins and ends the letter with these warm expressions of love and gratitude and encouragement for this church, uh, this community of faith that he planted in Philippi some 11 years earlier but not before offering some final thoughts about how to live in this world without being ruled by our circumstances. In other words, Paul's peace, his joy, his reasonableness, his gratitude, none of those things for Paul are based on his circumstances. 
And so he's trying to get these Philippians to look beyond their own disagreements and difficult circumstances and instead achieve a peace and a contentment among themselves that actually transcends their circumstances. Because circumstances, listen, should never be our source for peace or for contentment. Because, of course, our circumstances are constantly changing, which means trying to find contentment in this life through circumstances becomes a moving target because our circumstances are constantly changing. They cannot provide the contentment that we long for. And so Paul says, listen, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That is an amazing statement. That is an incredible thing for Paul to say. Think about what he's saying here. No matter what happens to me, no matter how good or bad my day goes, no matter how well or how poorly I'm treated by others, no matter how fair or unfair my situation may be, no matter how much I have or don't have, no matter how much hurt or pain someone else has caused me, no matter what, I've learned the secret to contentment. That is truly profound. I mean, don't you want to live that way? Don't you want to be content no matter what's going on in your life? How many people actually live that way? Instead of being jerked around by our circumstances up one day and down the next, full of joy one day and feeling empty the next based on whatever is happening to us, wouldn't you rather be able to say, no matter what happens to me, I am content, steady, full of joy, reasonable, level-headed, at peace. Paul says he's discovered the secret to all of that. And thankfully for us, he doesn't keep it a secret. He shares it with us in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says Jesus Christ is our source of strength. And what's really wonderful about that truth is the fact that Jesus Christ never changes. Hebrews 13, 8, you've probably heard it many times. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes, which is precisely why Paul's level of contentment, his peace never changes, because instead of peace in his life being dependent upon his circumstances, it's based upon the strength of an unchanging God, our source of strength. Look, peace always comes from a position of strength. If you have two nations who are enemies and one of those nations is very strong and the other is very weak, there won't be peace between them for very long because the strong nation will eventually overtake the weak. But where both nations remain very strong, there you will usually find peace between them. This is why Israel has one of the strongest and finest militaries on the earth today. Not because they long for war, but because they long for peace in a part of the world where there are nations with very large militaries who would like nothing more than to wipe them off the face of the planet. Peace always comes from a position of strength. And so if you want to have peace in your life, 
You will need to have strength in your life. And yet if your source of strength comes from your circumstances, you will never know the kind of peace that Paul talks about, the kind that surpasses all understanding. So listen, it is vitally important that we understand this very famous verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, within the context that it was written because there's a tendency among Western societies for Christians to apply this verse to overcoming unfavorable circumstances. And when we do that, when we make our circumstances the source of our strength, when nothing else could be further from the truth, we're mistreating this passage. When Paul wrote this, he wasn't bemoaning his unfavorable circumstances, and yet he was in some really bad circumstances. When he wrote this, he was in prison in Rome. That was not a fun place to be. He was suffering. His circumstances were not good at all when he, when he penned this verse. And so when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, he's not saying, I can overcome any set of circumstances through him who strengthens me. Okay, because if he was, he would be then saying, well, my peace and my contentment is dependent upon me moving from unfavorable circumstances into favorable circumstances. But that is decidedly not what Paul was saying. Well, what, what was he saying then? What are the all things that he says he can do through Christ? Well, he just listed them. This is why context is so important in understanding Scripture. Right before Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That is very different than saying I've learned that with Christ who strengthens me, I can always change my circumstances. With Christ who strengthens me, I can get that promotion I've been hoping for. With Christ who strengthens me, I can pass that test that I've been studying for. With Christ who strengthens me, I can get out of that bad relationship that I've been hurting over. Now, listen, I'm not saying that God doesn't want you to have that promotion or to pass that test or to get out of that bad relationship. I'm simply telling you that is not what Paul meant when he wrote this verse. And therefore, when we co-opt it, when we misuse it to say something that Paul wasn't saying, we're actually doing a great disservice to the true depth and beauty and power and meaning of what Paul was saying. Can you see the difference? Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When Paul says I can do all things, he's saying I can do all circumstances, good and bad, and still be content. I can still have peace no matter my circumstances because Jesus Christ is my source and he strengthens me no matter my circumstances. That verse is not about relying on Christ's strength to help us escape unfavorable circumstances so that we can achieve contentment and peace through favorable ones. No, that verse is about being able to remain content in all circumstances because he gives us that strength to have the peace and contentment that we long for. Listen, even if our circumstances never change. As far as Paul knew, he was going to die in that prison when he wrote this. 
You see, that is far more powerful and far more meaningful than merely saying, through Christ, I can escape the circumstances that I can't handle. No, it's saying I can handle anything because of Jesus Christ, who is my source of strength. Uh, in, in regard to this verse, C.J. Vaughn wrote, here we are especially called to notice that Christ enabled St. Paul and can enable all who believe to be contented with any condition and with any circumstances of life which the providence of God has been pleased to ordain. Contentment is the ready acquiescence of the heart and will in that which is and is for us. It is not the reaching to that which is forbidden or denied to us. It is not the looking with eager desire through the bars of our cage at a fancied liberty or an imagined paradise without. No, it is the saying, and saying because we feel it in the deep of our soul. This is God's will, and therefore, it is my will. You see the difference? Paul is teaching us the difference between finding peace in our circumstances and finding peace in Jesus Christ regardless of our circumstances. And the reason we can do that, the reason we can do all things, the reason we can do all circumstances, the reason we can have peace no matter what comes our way is because Jesus Christ is our source of strength and he never changes. So look, if you feel yourself feeling burned out, Stressed out over circumstances, preaching to myself here. If you often feel like you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop in your life, worrying about the next crisis in your family or the next fight with your spouse or the next rotten day at work, if you find that your happiness seems to be dependent upon the circumstances that you may be facing on any given day, then you may be looking to the wrong source for your peace, your strength, your contentment. Because once you truly learn to forsake the fleeting peace and strength that circumstances bring and instead run to the only source of true peace, the kind that surpasses all understanding, to the only source of true strength, the kind that says, I can do all things no matter my circumstances, then and only then you're drinking from a bottomless well of peace, an endless supply of strength peace and strength that doesn't change with your circumstances, but remains just as Christ remains. I don't want to counterfeit strength. I don't want to counterfeit peace in my life. I don't, I don't want to have to find contentment in my constantly changing circumstances. Not when the very source of abiding peace, the kind that surpasses our understanding, is offering it to me in every circumstance through his strength. Why would I try to draw strength from my own limited resources and the fragile state of my ever-changing situation when I'm being offered enduring strength from the one with limitless resources? Right? The, the first five words of that verse, I can do all things. That's true, but only when it's connected to the last five words. Through him who strengthens me. We cannot neglect the second half of that verse because the strength of your circumstances will never, ever, ever be enough to sustain you for the long haul. You need his strength for that. 
In verse 19, when Paul says to the Philippians, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He was saying that in response to all of the provision that they had just sent him in prison, not out of their wealth, Okay, the Philippians were not wealthy. They gave out of their need, you see. Their circumstances were not favorable to supply Paul when they did. But they didn't draw their strength from their circumstances. They drew their strength from Christ, who they knew was their source of true strength. They rallied together to support their brother in Christ. And Paul said, listen, as long as you keep doing that, as long as you continue to draw from your strength from him and do what he's called you to do, even when your circumstances may not be favorable, he will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Which, by the way, is a staggering measure of giving from God to us because there is no lack in God's riches and glory. There is no lack in his supply. It is endless so why draw our strength from a limited source, from changing circumstances that can never offer us true peace when we have a source of strength that never changes? The one who is offering us freely an endless supply of peace and contentment, Jesus Christ. He is our source of strength Let's pray.